You guys, I learned something about myself last week. So I was cleaning my um, basement out and I found some old things and among the old things I found were some of my old um, uh, yearbooks. And so like anyone who like finds their old high school yearbooks, I grabbed my senior yearbook and I, I went quick to the index to go and see where I was in the yearbooks. I just couldn't remember. And uh, here's what I discovered. I was in the disc golf club. And I cannot express to you how much of a surprise this was to me. <laughs> L- truly, if I did not have this yearbook, I would have never, ever, ever remembered that I was part of the disc golf team. As a matter of fact, now there's some of you in this room who've seen me throw a Frisbee, and right now you're like, I have so many questions. And I have the same questions. Apparently they didn't even trust me enough to hold a Frisbee in the picture. Um, but somewhere along there, I was a part of the disc golf club in my high school. I just, my mind was like totally blown. As I, it started to slowly come back to me. I, I kind of vaguely remember maybe playing disc golf once or twice with these people. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that I must have. I, I was in the picture, right? That means everything. Although I will tell you, I didn't show up in the band picture and I know I was in band. <laughs> but belonging is a funny thing. Belonging is a funny thing because clearly I belonged to the disc golf club, but I didn't belong to it. It didn't leave an impact on me. I didn't have any memory of it. I would have never known it if I hadn't have run across this picture. And belonging is what we're talking about this year at Northminster. We kind of named it as our thematic goal. It's speaking about what it means that I belong. And we kind of get that phrase from a thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an old way of teaching the faith. And the first question and answer of that catechism is, is um, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I belong that I belong to Jesus, that body and soul and life and death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we explore Psalm 31 this morning, if you have your Bible, we're gonna go, we're gonna see that the Psalms are going to um, help us think more about this belonging. Spoiler alert, we're gonna see that belonging to God has everything to do with how we navigate hardships and struggle in life. Psalms in general help us Uh, through, help us think about a way that it means to belong to God that changes our life, not in a disc golf belonging way, but in a life-altering, this is foundational to who I am kind of way. Think about all the things you belong to. Think about all the things that you, you belong to your family of origin, you belong to maybe a family that you've built, you belong to the schools that you go to, you belong to the communities that you live in, maybe you belong to some civic organizations or you belong to a, a, a supporters of a certain sports team, go cards, right? We have all sorts of belongings, but over and under and around and in and through all of that is the idea that we, if we belong to Jesus, if we're followers of him, we belong to something much greater. We belong to the God of the universe. So let's read together Psalm 31, and let's explore what this belonging has to do with who we are and how we face our lives. We're gonna read the whole thing, it's a little longer, um, but it's always good to read scripture together. So let's read Psalm 31, beginning in verse one, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. 
Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous and pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. God, I do ask that this word would take root in our hearts, that we may be encouraged and strengthened by its truth and called into deeper places of trust. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. This is a fantastic text. Unfortunately, we're not gonna have a ton of time to dig into it, so I really wanna encourage you later this week, read it a couple times more. Uh, Take your time with it. We're just not gonna be able to pull it apart. But what we are gonna do this morning is we're gonna do a quick overview. What's What's the Psalm actually saying? And then we're gonna pull out two things, two main teachings, two main points to explore. And then out of that, we'll ask a few questions and we'll be done. So let's start by 
uh, looking at an overview of this psalm. It's a difficult one to categorize, right? Because it's kind of all over the place, right? There's some places where it seems like a personal lament. It's a cry. It's like, oh, these horrible things are happening. And there's other places where it seems like a song of thanksgiving, a, a, a statement of God's goodness and his, his um, goodness to, to all who would call on him. And those things kind of go back and forth. And so many commentators really struggle, struggle with it. They point out that there's no logical progression to this psalm. Instead, the the poet seems to kind of rock back and forth between declaring God as a refuge and a rescue and then pleading with God to come be a refuge and a rescue. Just so you can kind of get an idea, there's really two prayers um, that come first and they include both of those pieces. So there's, there's a pleading with God and then a thanksgiving in the prayer of the first eight verses and then there's another prayer in verses nine through 22 that again is a pleading and a call for help and then a thanksgiving and then it kind of closes with, a, with an encouragement or an exhortation at the end. The poem uh, is really about suffering and trust. You know, the poet is struggling with his reaction to suffering. This is a universal human condition I'm sure we've all experienced, but it's an ill-defined suffering. Distress has come. The nature of the trouble, however, is unclear. And the poet has probably left it purposefully ambiguous. Did you hear there are several things mentioned? Like we're told that there's, there's the threat of enemies and adversaries, but there's also a struggle with the idolatry of the culture. There seems to be sickness and illness and a physical suffering, but there's also grief and sorrow. It's combined with there's some guilt over iniquity or sinfulness. There's a ton of spiritual doubt. Where are you, God? And there's social distress and isolation. And so there's all these kinds of different trouble that are swirling around in this psalm, and I think it's on purpose because then we can relate to it whatever's going on in our life and what's going on in your life. I don't know how you've experienced trouble and distress in your life. It could be physical. It could be with an illness or struggle. It could be with grief and loss. It could be with our own sinfulness. It could be with a big question mark. God, what are you doing? It could be with, um, with isolation and, and social problems. Whatever it is, we can relate to it in this psalm. And the psalmist and the poet is doing something interesting because although he knows he can trust God, She's caught up in the emotions of what's happening and, and what, what she's feeling. And so you have these words like, I'm in distress, verse nine. My life is spent with sorrow, verse 10. I've become like a broken vessel. I've become like a, a living corpse, I say. And the very soul is involved. That, that inner place that makes us who we are, that very inside thing where we, we wrestle with things and maybe people can't ever see it, we're told that the distress is inside, it's in the soul. And so, and so the psalmist has this, this ill-defined struggle so that we can all relate with it and says, hey, it's actually, it's actually really eating me up inside. Don't we all know a little bit what that's like? So out of that experience, the psalmist requests deliverance. So God, I need you to come and do something here. I need you to be my refuge. I need you to be my strong fortress. I need you to protect and deliver me. And that's the essence of the prayers that pop up in this psalm, is to God, come and do something. And even in particular, the psalmist says, look, bring me out into a spacious place. This idea that it's not just kind of protect me like this, God, but bring me into a place of freedom and security and peace and rest. 
rest. And so in the middle of acknowledging that God has done all of that already, the psalmist also says, come do it some more. I'm freaking out here, God. I need your help. But maybe the most interesting part of this psalm is how the poet slips between those two things. How the, how the psalmist kind of swirls in and out of deep confidence in who God is and into deep struggle with the circumstances of life and back into to struggle with like, hey, like God is good, but where is he? And then back into, no, of course God will be faithful to me. I trust him. And all of those things coming together and swirling together. And isn't that like life? How many of us, if we've been faithful followers of Jesus, know what it's like to go back and forth between those things? It's almost like you get the sense that the psalmist is looking up at God and saying, God, I trust you, but what the heck is going on here? Can anyone relate? There's an Old Testament scholar uh, named Beth Tanner, and she writes in her commentary on this psalm, our lives don't unfold in a logical order. Things happen that we do not expect and faith and doubt are part of that cycle. We can believe one moment and know that our lives, both physical and spiritual, belong to God's faithful hands. And the next second, feel alone and full of doubt and hurt. This psalm tells about the reality in our lives. So the theme penetrating this whole psalm as we finish our overview is really a theme of trust. Can I trust God? Like, it's almost as if the psalmist is asking, I can trust you, right? Like, I've seen you do these things. You're still that God, right? Because my circumstances are overwhelming. I'm in distress. I'm confused. I feel isolated. No one knows me. I'm alone. I don't have any friends. I'm abandoned. And there seems to be no end in sight. But at the same time, God, you have always been a stronghold to me. You've always been my rock and my deliverer. And the psalm holds those two things in tension, just like we do. And so what might be our two main points to get today? What might be the two things that we want to, to learn from this psalm? Well, here's the first thing. It's that God is knowable, present, and trustworthy in the midst of deep, ongoing, soul-level distress. God is knowable, present and trustworthy in the midst of deep, ongoing, soul-level distress. This may seem counterintuitive. It does for many, many, many people because we kind of grow up with a paradigm and we think that God loves me and God is powerful. He made everything. And so if God sees how hard all of this is for me, if God sees the way that my soul is in turmoil, why isn't he doing anything to fix it? And I've seen so many people, especially students, turn their back on faith because they can't reconcile these things. How can God be real and say that he loves me and yet how can he not see the, the deep soul level struggle I'm going through, whether it's socially or physically or in grief or in confusion? You know, the psalmist himself, the psalmist himself has doubted God's goodness and presence. Did you notice in verse 22? I love it. Verse 22, the psalmist said, I had said in my alarm, I'd said in my crisis, I had said in my panic, when things were at their worst, I said, I am cut off from your sight. 
You know what it says? Like when things were at their worst, I thought God had abandoned me. I thought God had forgotten about me. We all know that feeling, that feeling of looking up at God and saying, where are you? Don't you see how much my, my soul is in turmoil? Don't you see me struggling, God? Where are you? What are you up to? But the lesson of this psalm is that there is a blessing in adversity. That in our soul level distress, God is still present. Did you see verse seven? The poet says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Do you know what the poet didn't say? The poet didn't say, I'll rejoice and be glad in your love because you've gotten rid of my affliction and because you have erased the distress of my soul. Poet doesn't say that. Do you hear what the poet says? The poet says, I'm gonna rejoice and be glad in your love because you see me and you know me in this hard place. German scholar Arthur Weiser said it like this. He says, every suffering that is brought before God already goes somewhat towards the overcoming of that suffering. You know, Psalm isn't about arousing God's compassion. It's not about saying, God feels sorry for me. Instead, it's us calling out to God from a primitive need of all afflicted human beings to alleviate their suffering by unburdening their hearts to someone who understands them. God is present in our struggle because he understands it. He hears it. And so the worshiper isn't just allowed to come before God, but is invited to come before the very presence of the living God, the Lord of hosts, the one who has made all it is, come before that God without hiding a single thing from him. And able to say, God, life stinks right now. I am really struggling. Where are you? What is happening? Don't you see my illness? Don't you see my isolation? Don't you see the way things have swirled for me? And the worshiper gets to come before God because he is present and he is listening. We all know what this is like. Late yesterday afternoon, I got a text from my sister-in-law and it was a picture of my nephew uh, in a hospital bed. I think it was in a clinic and he's all beat up and, and kind of bloody and gross and you see him, he's kind of trying to smile, but he got a mask on and, and the text just said, don't hit number nine on the treadmill. <laughs> so, I, I didn't get the whole story. <laughs> I'm really anxious to hear the whole story, but, um, but uh, my nephew wanted me to know that he had had some trouble, and, uh, and things weren't going great. And there's a part of knowing that we can share with God. There's a part of knowing we go to him in our difficulties. That is a part of knowing his blessing there. Friends, our distress, our soul-level struggle, our grief, our pain, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It's actually an invitation to come closer. So what's the second thing we learn from this psalm? The second thing we learn is this. Our confidence in God's goodness and his willingness to save is based on the steadfast love of the covenant-keeping God, not on the imagined strength 
of our unwavering belief. Let me say that one more time. Our confidence in God's goodness and his willingness to save is based on the steadfast love of the covenant-keeping God, not on the imagined strength of our unwavering belief. Let's unpack that a little bit. Did you see twice the psalmist says, don't let me put, be put to shame. What the poet is saying is not saying I don't, I don't wanna be ashamed. What the poet is saying is don't let me be proved wrong here. Don't let me be proved wrong. There's something at stake, God, because I've told everyone that I trust in your goodness. We just sang that great song, The Goodness of God. It fits so well this morning because we proclaim God's goodness and how can we possibly do that with such confidence? There's so much at stake in us proclaiming loudly to the world that God is good. Did you see what the psalmist said in verse 19? The poet says, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. How in the world do we say that with confidence? Well, here's how. First, we know that God acts because of who he is. Did you see that's how the psalm starts? In verse one, it says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame, or let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. You know what the psalm doesn't say? It doesn't say, because of my righteousness, deliver me. It doesn't say, because I've done everything right. The psalmist doesn't say, because I've kept all the rules. The psalmist doesn't say, because I've trusted so much, because I put so much at stake. What the psalmist says throughout this whole psalmist, because of who you are, God, I need you to come and deliver me. It is based on God's character. It's based on his name. Throughout this psalm, you've heard me say this many, many times, but in your English translations, in our English translations, when we see the word Lord written in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we're seeing an indication from the translators that that is the personal name of God, Yahweh. And it pops up all over this psalm. And what the psalmist wants us to know is that personal covenant-keeping God is who the poet is talking to. Remember when that name was given? It was given at the burning bush, right? Moses is at the burning bush and God's saying, hey, I need you to go rescue my people. And Moses is like, oh, who should I say sent me? And God's like, tell him Yahweh sent you. Yahweh means I am that I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm gonna do what I'm going to do. Tell him that's who sent you. And so Yahweh is the name that is used when God makes promises to Abraham. Yahweh is the name that is used when God makes promises to Moses and his people at Sinai. Yahweh is the name that is used when God makes promises to David. And so here's the covenant-keeping God who has made promises and has said, this is who I am. I'm the one who calls a people for my own. Right, and that's the essence of the covenant. How do you sum up God's covenants? It's just this, I'll be your God and you be my people. What's the essence of the covenant? It's belonging. God says, look, I've promised that you will be my people and I will be your God. So God cannot go back on his promises. Paul says, let, let every man be a liar and God be true. So God has promised that you and I belong to him. This is who he is. He can't not work good for us. 
How can we say with confidence in the middle of our, our soul turmoil, how can we say with confidence in the middle of the things that are absolutely tearing us apart, God, you are good. We can say that because it is who he is. It's not the strength of my trust. It's my confidence in who he is. So you see that other covenant word pop up over and over in the psalm, that word steadfast love. It's, it's hesed in, in, in the Hebrew. You've heard us talk about it many times, but there it is in verse seven. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has shown his steadfast love for me. God can't help but keep his covenant love towards us. You guys, whatever you're going through or you have been through, or what God will lead you to, you, if you belong to him, God cannot help but be good to you because he has promised it. He can't help but show his love to you. He can't help but rescue you and deliver you because it is who he is. The psalmist is tossed and turned. His faith wavers. He knows that his sin has has sapped his strength. He knows that he has made mistakes. And, And the psalmist, that poet, is unable to muscle up the strength to earn God's favor and to earn God's favor. But what the psalmist can do is he can trust. The psalmist can't say, I know who you are. Your belonging to God does not rest, friends. Your belonging to God does not rest on your ability to get everything right. It doesn't rest on your ability to never doubt. It doesn't rest on your ability to be the most faithful person. It rests on the character of God who has called you into relationship with himself. So in other words, we can trust God because of who he is, not because of who we are. You hear echoes of this in Romans 8, of course. I'm sure Paul is thinking about these things as he says that God works all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you remember what he goes on to say? He says, who could separate us from this love. He lists all these things. He said, could life or death or angels or demons or famine or nakedness or sword or height or depth or, it could anything keep us from the love of God that's in Jesus? Of course not. Because his love is set on you. You belong to him. And so we ask ourselves some key questions. How do I typically respond to soul level distress in my life? What do I do when things are swirling around? What do I do when I'm in turmoil? Where does my suffering send me for refuge? I found more and more commonly in in today's world that we run for refuge to distraction. I say, my soul is, is upset, my soul is in distress, and so I'm gonna hit play on the next episode that I'm binge watching because I don't wanna think about it. 
And I'm gonna scroll for 15 more minutes on Facebook because I don't wanna think about what's actually going on in my heart. And instead of turning to God for refuge, we turn to distraction. We ask ourselves questions like, to whom do I belong? How have I experienced confidence in God? And I fear that so many of us, our belonging to God fits somewhere closer to the disc golf club than the defining relationship of our lives. And we've had these experiences somewhere in our past, maybe um, at a banquet or a retreat or maybe when we were a teenager or maybe at a conference or maybe somewhere long ago we had a sense that God was good to us and since then our life has been relatively smooth and we are asked to say, why is your confidence in God? And we go like, I don't know, it always has been. And we've forgotten what stirred us towards him in the first place. I think the biggest question the psalm forces us to ask of ourselves is just this. Do I believe God is trustworthy? I think most of us answer that question with, I think he probably is. And what happens when we answer the question with, I think he probably is, is we start hedging our bets a little bit. And we think God probably is trustworthy But just in case, I need to make sure that I can trust myself and my abilities and my intelligence and my winsomeness and my looks, or I need to make sure I can trust what's in my bank account because things could turn upside down and I need to be able to protect myself. Or I think that I may need to trust my status and what I've achieved and what I've earned. And the problem is, we answer the question of God's trustworthiness by saying, yeah, he probably is but just in case. And instead, we miss the delight of the psalmist who can without hesitation say, is God trustworthy? Of course, God is trustworthy. And so in complete abandon to the goodness of God, I can say back to God, into your hands, I give my spirit, I give my life, my very life, I give what makes me, me. Into your hands, I give my children. Into your hands I give my parents. Into your hands, God, I give my future. Into your hands, God, I give my bottom line. Into your hands, God, I give my illness. Into your hands, God, I commit the things that just have me up at night. Can we say wholeheartedly with the psalmist, like my days belong to you, God. I'm so convinced of your goodness and your character that I put the most important things to me into your hands. Because everything that matters the most to you is safest with God. The famous example of this, of course, is Jesus on the cross who quotes this psalm. You remember it. You can look it up in Luke. And as he's dying and suffering on the cross, he calls out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's quoting Psalm 31. And can't we just imagine so much else of this psalm is cycling through his head. The psalmist says they plot to take my life. 
when the psalmist says they ignore me on the street, when the, the psalmist says they've set a net for me, when the psalmist says I'm in distress, when the psalmist cries out, be a refuge and a rock and a deliverer, can't you imagine those words on Christ's mind as well? So if you ever doubt the goodness of God, or if you ever doubt that he knows what it is to be in distress, look to Jesus. He knew it. He went through it on the cross and what we learned by his interpretation of that psalm is just this. God may not rescue or save or deliver in the way that we want him to here on earth but with supreme confidence we can trust him with our eternal life. And so the psalmist does something interesting here at the end. The poet, it's like he stops this conversation he's been having with God. He stops the back and forth. He's been going back and forth. Do I trust you? I think I trust you. Yes, I trust you, but I'm going through all this stuff, but you are good. I'm sure about it. And, and, but here's what's happening. And my heart almost like, turned away from you. I thought you had abandoned me. And it's like this conversation stops all of a sudden, and he turns and he looks at us. He looks at you, the reader of the psalm. He looks at me, the reader of the psalm, and he says in verse 23, he says this, Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Do you hear how the psalm ends? It ends with this encouragement. you, You get the sense the psalm is going, you know what this is like, don't you, everyone? To go back and forth between faith and doubt between deep struggle and deep trust. And so here's what you do. Love Yahweh. Love him. Set all your hope on his justice because he sees what's going on. You hear what he says? He says, look, he preserves the faithful. He repays the prideful. Nothing escapes him. He is aware. He will be faithful. He will set it all right. So love him and be strong. And tell your heart to take courage. Because in the middle of suffering, you belong to God. Let's pray. God, I have no doubt that there are many of us in this room who are uh, probably doing just fine. You don't have a lot of soul level distress. And I thank you for that. But God, I'm also sure there's others of us in this room today who do have some of that distress and that struggle. And so God, for us, I ask that we would remain convinced of your love for us. That like the psalmist, we would return again and again to a confidence that's based in who you are. whatever comes in our life you are good to us God would you give us the courage to entrust into your hands those things which we worry about the most and would the world see a people who belong to you and who are not put to shame for their trust 
We ask this in Christ's name.